because you're jumping back into the gap. All right, let's hey, go. Coach. Welcome to the Basketball Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Oliver. I appreciate you joining us for this week's podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit basketballimmersion.com for more coaching resources and access to all the basketball podcasts. I hope you will give us a shout out on social media, on Twitter at Bball Immersion, or on Instagram at Basketball Immersion to help me continue to share the game. Enjoy the episode. Welcome. As we have a special guest today on the Basketball Immersion podcast, the esteemed Christopher Bartholomew Oliver. Welcome to your own show. Yeah, it's amazing. Middle name's actually Richard. So uh, just to clarify for people, but uh, thank you. Passporter, I don't believe it. I know. Will had this idea of basically a few years ago, I think. But, you know, with all your travels and uh, your world events, we've had a hard time putting it together. So I'm grateful for you to do this and flip the script, so to speak. Well, I thought... If I could talk to anybody to try to squeeze out some wisdom, a man who makes his business asking the smartest coaches and sport leaders on the planet questions, yeah, what kind of fun would that be? So my hope is that we can get into some weeds on strategy and also in terms of how you implement some of the strategies that you bring to game court, practice court, staffs education, program building, leadership, all those sorts of things. So just to lead off, I felt we'd, we'd sort of tackle something that, you know, the NBA playoffs are in full swing. Um, I think all coaches, all, you know, people that love basketball, love watching basketball this time of year. Specific to the NBA, if there was a uh, job that you took over tomorrow, what would be the one sort of maybe non-traditional approach that you would take that you think is high leverage but not maybe being taken advantage of as much as it should be specifically to an MBA environment. And then how would you implement that? Wow. Let's start with a real easy question, right? <laughs> <laughs> so I've been grateful to be able to interact with people like yourself and attend different practices and, uh, you know, get a little bit of an inside look, but believe me, and that's why this is great that you're here because everything that I approach from will be theoretical because I'm not truly in that environment. And that's what's going to be fun about this conversation. And I think the over, if I was just to start with a really broad thing, it would be this concept of more integration. And I've shared this and I've kept a notebook ever since I started attending NBA practices about six years ago about kind of what would I do if I was an NBA coach. And the first thing is this more integration of sports science within the staff. And I think that's the separation right now, even though, and again, I don't know if you can speak to it or not, the different staffs you've been on, if they have sports science inclusion, but it's very different between that and having integration of, say, a sports psychologist who's actually at practice and involved in the discussions, a strength and conditioning coach that's actually involved in discussions and decisions. The example with a strength coach that we often come back to is, how do you teach a closeout? Well, ultimately, isn't it someone who knows and it's their business to say, this is how you run fast and this is how you decelerate and stop. But we as coaches seem to say we have that answer. And I think at the NBA, when you talk about resources, this integration is probably what I would consider that next level. And the thing that I would do first is to have these people around me that could help me with this process of what we're talking about. You mentioned sports psych. And I think that's an area that um, many of us think has real value and maybe have, we haven't had the opportunity to see what great sports psych integration looks like in my 
previous country, you know, Australia, I think does an exceptionally good job of this. Uh, there's clubs in Europe I know that have invested heavily in this, especially in the, you know, EPL and um, those kinds of spaces. What's your sense of zoom out from the NBA? Just what do you, what would you be most excited to have next to you from a uh, performance specialist neck up kind of practitioner? Well, think about that sports, uh, that, that sports science example, but let's say, let's focus in on sports psychologists. Like almost, I would want them next to me on the bench and I would want them next to me at practice because to be honest, there's all these moments. And I know some coaches might perceive it as weakness that I should always know the answers. But honestly, I think back to so many interventions that I had as a coach with players. And if I had someone that could kind of let them breathe or cue them to remind them to park or to throw away what they're feeling or to remind me to park or throw away what I'm feeling and the different things like that. And I think about it's this emotional management that has got to be the most complex part of coaching that is the least focused on in so many ways. And again, I get it like a high school staff, you can't have a sports psychologist probably integrated. I get that. But in the NBA staff, there's really no reason to not have that. And this is not a knock on you, Will, or any other assistants, but how many assistants do I need to provide scattering reports versus how, how can I better manage that staff, that people that can actually impact the relationship I have with that player, or, you know, obviously my ability to be able to intervene and help a player truly develop. Yeah, you're preaching to the choir. Um, we're certainly aligned on that view. The, I guess what's interesting to me is you're identifying some of the value adds that someone, a very specialized, you know, expert in that space could bring and integrating not only that specific type of person, but having a set of systems in place that cultivates uh, the best, most modern evidence-based uh, information and funnels it to the person who's having to make hard decisions seems clearly beneficial maybe talk about how do you think a, there are workarounds for that? Let's say you don't have access to the best, um, you know, sports psychologist on the planet that you can pay $500 an hour, which I think would cover many, many programs, some in the NBA included. Do you think that there are ways to record oneself or opportunities to maybe in a leadership position, make it safe to reflect on what were the words we used in that hot moment? What do we do from a queuing standpoint in our training sessions? Are there any resources available for coaches that want to go find and learn more about this space to consider how um, bringing that approach doesn't necessarily have necessarily have a, you know, $500 an hour price tag with it. So th that is the obsession. So if I think if I'm, if I'm been successful at anything, it's been obviously questioning things and being okay to step outside and question it and say, is there a better way? And I would say the other thing is to be obsessed with how do we actually make it practical, right? And that is our challenge, right? Because Will and I can read any sport research article we want on sports psychology and nod our heads and agree, but it's like, how do you actually implement that? So I love this question. Let's start from a general standpoint. It's going to feed into my games-based approach or my play-based approach, which is if we play more small-sided games and we do more offense versus defense in practice, then we're doing more to build mindset training than anything else we can do. And you think about that, the only way, again, sports science is the same, or sports science, but let's say sports psychology specifically, it's the same as physical development. 
it's not enough to just teach it in a classroom or to teach it on air. They have to be able to implement it offense versus defense. So to have these different strategies and mindset training, let's say mindset that is a next to impossible to learn from on-air practice or on-air skill work. And that's this, how to be resilient, how to make mistakes and learn from mistakes and park mistakes or throw away mistakes, next play mentality, how to handle winning and losing. So my number one thing is to play more games because players are in more situations where they struggle. And if we're really talking about mindset training and next level development, then they have to be in that environment so that I can cue them. And a simple cue might be something, again, uh, we've seen Olympic athletes do it or different types of people. That's where I've really learned it is a strategy of say, just close your fist, you feel the tension and then let it go. I mean, that's simple stuff. That's simple pop psychology. But what it is supposed to do is to make the player aware of their feeling something and then they can become aware. Once you become conscious of it, you can throw it away. Because the problem is most of the time when Will and I lose our mind as coaches, we're not consciously aware of how much we're losing our mind, are we? <laughs> Which speaks to your second point which is record yourself coaching, record yourself coaching. If you're an assistant coach, have a peer that can watch the video with you as a head coach, find an assistant or a mentor that can watch the video with you. And I'll say this, and I sh I'm sure you won't mind. I got a chance to see Eric Spolstra before a game. And I just asked him, so what do you do before the game? And he said, the thing he does is he reviews the last game with one of his assistants, every decision. And basically, this assistant is empowered to question all of his decisions. And you think about that as a coach, it's like we spend all this time on scout and prep. How much time do we do on actually evaluating our decisions from the game? And that's got to be those two parts of it, along with actually recording yourself and listening to it. I'll give you a quick quote from Dr. Smith and Dr. Small. These guys did a lot of stuff around mastery and coaching, but particularly they focused on this youth domain. And it's one of the striking findings from our research, they say is in which we observed and recorded actual coaching behaviors was that coaches had very limited awareness of how frequently they behaved in various ways. You and I can both nod our head, right? <laughs> like how many times did you realize, well, I wasn't actually acting that way. <laughs> so, so those Parenting, are areas. marriage, yeah. basketball coaching, right? Oh like gosh. life, life. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All these rivers come together. It seems. So do you think, Think about that. So more game-based play brings out more situations where we can develop mindset. It's really hard to build a mindset in on-air drills. I mean, say, let's, again, I'm not knocking three-man weave, but it seems to be the simplest example. Three-man weave, full court. Oh, let's go harder. Let's push farther. Let's do, mm, there's no real barometer for them to do that beyond this artificial thing. Whereas it's offense versus defense and you succeed or you struggle. Now there's true mindset training and training in terms of that. Can I throw one last thing? Think about this in terms of practice. We do these practice drills where we keep score. How many times do we stop it and say, listen, Will, your team's not going to win. Like you're down 9-2 and it's game to 10. Look, it's a perfect time to stop it. You're not going to win. But can you get it closer? Right? And like we always, everything's always related to wins. But what about these other ways to be able to say mindset training? If we truly want to train a team to be able to improve and develop beyond their area and reach beyond it, it's like, challenge them in unique and different ways like that. I love that idea that you can bend constraints even within sort of the meta approach of questioning, all right, let's make the focus not winning right now. Let's make the focus uh, your enjoyment or your risk-taking or your communication as a group in this hard moment. I think that's a really powerful idea. 
Um, you, you said enjoyment. So it makes me want to ask you a question. And that's what's okay. hard about this. That's, that's not against the rules. Yeah, no, it's not. I know. So like, there's the thing. How, and I think all coaches have to think about this. First of all, do you define fun for your players? Do you define what fun is within your practices, within your program? Because I think that's really important to define that. And I remember this video of Anson Dorrance, famous soccer coach at North Carolina women's soccer, won too, too many championships to even name. But you see their pregame locker room prior to a game. They actually have dance parties in the pregame. And you can go Google this if you want on YouTube. But you see this different approach. And it's like he's made that because they rank and compare everything. They have competition in every drill they do in practice. But then you see this dichotomy kind of of this pregame locker room where it's like everyone's like relaxed and dancing and having fun. But I guarantee that happens because they've defined it for them. That this is what's why are we doing this? We're doing this not to say the game's not serious. We're doing this to get you in the right mental state. And how many coaches define that? Do you think that, can you think of any examples either from your own coaching experience or from talking to people that, um, of systems, of procedures, of ways to capture the opportunities to identify the forks in the road that get you to dance parties before national championship games, <laughs> as opposed to all the vicious cycles that we know exists, right? Like I imagine there were innumerable moments that Coach Dorrance was able to leverage to move people down that curve, himself included, to get to that place. What are some things that from your vast amount of experience thinking and talking to many people um, that you think might help coaches or that could help all of us? Yeah, the basketball podcast has really helped shape this for me. It's just talking to coaches and kind of hear them define their cultures and their values and different things within that. And I would say the number one thing is this concept of noticing progress. Like I think about what is truly fun for a player, and let's let's be honest. Again, we're from youth on up. I believe it's exactly the same. They yeah, there's frivolous fun at certain levels, but most of it comes down to improvement. You know what fun is for a player is improving, improving their skills, and let's make sure that we include decisions as part of skill development because we too often think of skill as biomechanical, but it's both like biomechanical and decisions. And think about that. So what I equate that to is this. If I help a player become more skilled, they have more possibilities or solutions within their game, and thus they have more fun playing the game. So if we're talking about retention or talking about developing the elite athlete to their next level, then I think we have to frame fun as improvement. And then I'd say the other part of fun, fun which we try and frame for players, is kind of what we talked about before. Fun is competing. It's seeing that you couldn't do something before and now you can do it better. And it's okay to frame things that way. And I think that's another thing that you and I both align with is this using learning language is another concept is to be able to frame. Isn't it fun to learn something? Like I got to think that, you know, most elite players, people, whatever, they love learning something that helps them. So if we can frame that for the player, then I think defining fun and getting to that point of saying, okay, listen, this is your best performance state. It's from all of this experience of developing them through that. So there's so much good stuff in there. The thing that came to mind that could be perceived maybe as a different um, worldview in this space, but I think is connected. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. It's sort of the idea of the, I'm, I might, it's, I'm, I'm uh, 
I'm not quoting here, but to paraphrase, show me the, uh, show me the incentive and I'll show you the outcome. You know, great Charlie Munger. Talk to me about how, when you're in a position of authority, an assistant coach, a head coach, an athletic director, whatever it is, what are the ways that incentives help create those virtuous cycles or maybe those vicious cycles? And how does that connect to finding joy in what many of us at one point thought of as a game, this basketball thing? Hey coach, brief interruption from the podcast. Have you heard of Spotify Greenroom? Spotify Greenroom is a free audio-only social media platform for sports fans. Start enjoying ongoing conversations, watch games together, react to the biggest news, rumors, and games. Talk with other sports fans, insiders, athletes, and executives in real time. I host a room every Tuesday at 9 p.m. Come through and talk with me live. All you need to do is download the Spotify Greenroom app free in the iOS or Android app store. Create a profile, link your Twitter, and join the conversation. Follow me at B-Ball Immersion on Twitter to be notified when my room goes live. Hey coach, I really appreciate you listening to the basketball podcast, and I hope you will consider supporting it and your coaching even more as the countdown is over. It's here. It's live. It's been years in the making. We have launched our newly redesigned website at basketballimmersion.com. Basketball Immersion is an effective player development tool because we focus on coach development. Since we know the greatest player development is coach development, we support and stimulate change in you as a coach. Now is the time to immerse yourself in learning. In our community, we'll show you how to get specific outcomes using comprehensive video and course-based learning, as well as community interaction and expert sharing in our master classes. You will get specific outcomes to stimulate, add to, make over, or improve your coaching. Join our community today at basketballimmersion.com and learn what is possible. So I would say that the number one thing, if I'm following this and connecting this properly, I think is to co-create solutions. And I think that's been a part, I think, I, I believe that modern coaches and for whatever you want to define that as, because it could be an old, old coach that's a modern coach. So it's, I don't want to think it's about old and young. It's just about people that spend more time factoring the human part of coaching. Right. And I think that's what modern coaching is essentially is, is that we're coaching people. We're going to treat them with people like people. And what we know about people is that we're different. Right. You and I are different. So to be able to sit down with one of your players or one of our assistants or someone within our organization and to be able to co-create solutions and to be able to do that as part of the process, I believe empowers them and inspires them. And really, that's the point is that we want players. I mean, players are more motivated by implicit motivation, clearly, this desire to be better in some way or to have a better experience in some way. So to have them feel like they're a part of that solution or a part of that development has got to be such an important part of that. And uh, as you know, a good coach is able to manipulate the conversation in a good way to be able to make the player seem like it's their idea, right? And it is ultimately that's part of this co-creation part of this process that, uh, you know, we coach to the player's solution, not ours. And that's another got to be, again, a hard part, um, you know, to everything. We had Ronald Nord on the podcast. He did a great job framing it for us in terms of this. And I really thought it was brilliant. It's like, if all of us just thought about we're coaching an NBA player or a WNBA player all the time, even if we're coaching 10-year-olds, then the one thing that I've taken away from so many of you NBA coaches is just that, you, oh, you can't coach them that way. And a lot of that ways are the bad ways, 
And you just can't coach an NBA player in those ways. And I think it's much better to be able to build the relationship and co-create and, you know, love to hear your thoughts on that part of it, because I think NBA coaches and pro coaches tend to approach coaching differently than we would as a college coach or youth coach. Well, and Ron has such an amazing set of experiences and gift at articulating all of that. You know, the, you think of his time at Butler being a part of those championship teams with seeing Coach Stevens, you know, in that element, um, being a very young G League head coach and, you know, playing his games at Barclays Center. Where we overlapped with the Brooklyn Nets and to watch him make those connections and really build that brand new program. Um, it was one of the most impressive things I've seen. So to try to take, I'm, you know, you're filling in a picture now. There's, it's a games-based approach. It's going to um, create a benefit in terms of the ways that it's going to challenge your players' resilience. It's going to give you opportunities to create joy within the work that you're doing. And you're going to involve everyone, players, coaches, staff, uh, modeling behavior for each other about ways that um, you can grow and learn and improve and fail and, you know, recover. I want to give you a hypothetical. And I'd like to, for that, hopefully, to be able to link back into some of these broader themes. So let's say that you took over a program tomorrow, and it doesn't really matter the level, I don't think. So I'm happy for you to sort of give us the, your own constraints um, in the ways that you think might be most interesting. But let's say you're switching from whatever that team did last year as you're a new coach to a new way to play. And both are conceptual in terms of offense. And I, you can pick the... Um, from Mike D'Antoni, five out pistol and delay to Princeton or St. Joseph, Maine, drive and kick, you know, drive right, move right. Um, any way from one to the other, you can pick any of that sort of thing. W what would be the nuts and bolts of, let's say, your first week implementing one of those um, new concept based offenses? So this is something that's uh, definitely a very common question about some of the methodology that I share and some of the perceptions are sometimes wrong. I am, and, and, and I know this is part of the frame of the conversation is like the value of five on out, the value of on-air work. And I am 100% on board that there is value to that. So if I'm thinking about a new offensive install though, I'm not starting there. And that's the part where I think people get to the point of understanding what I'm saying is if I'm going to install that, let's say the BDT offense, because Alex Sarama, who we both know and love, I mean, just genius in terms of him compiling basically years of what I've done into this, this way of teaching a conceptual offense called the BDT offense. And if I think about that and I think about what he's done, it's this way of saying, okay, we're going to teach it five on five to start. And then we're going to play five on five to start. And then that is going to help me decide what I need to focus more in on. And it drives me back because five on O is necessary. I'll say that again, coaches. Five on O is necessary because five on O helps give players a structure from which they feel free, right? It's really hard for Will as a player to become the best decision maker he can be if he doesn't first understand the structure. And I think that's what we're seeing in the NBA playoffs and in the NBA in general is just such a phenomenal job of teams spacing and respacing. So the drive and kick game, 
is obviously there. But what's more impressive is I see how teams respace and how teams drive and kick. And then that, that player that catches it in that shot drive decision is very much this immediate, this zero seconds concept. So, so much of teaching conceptual starts from the end in mind is like, what happens after the play? And I think that's really, I mean, you could correct me, but I think that's what we see in the NBA is like, like you guys don't run these really complex offenses. You run these kind of like, almost like quick hit type of actions where you're trying to hunt a matchup, attack a matchup or get a matchup in space. And then from there, it's players playing off of that play and that type of thing. And I think that's what good conceptual offense is. So structured to unstructured. So this concept has to happen at some point. I would just start unstructured to structured and then figure out when we can go back to unstructured again so that we integrate it in that way. And then this concept of this buffet, these constraints approach to coaching is that we don't have to shape the whole offense at once. We can grab parts of it and say, okay, uh, Will, I'm going to take you to the buffet today and you can only eat at the salad bar and pasta. You know, but eventually Will might be able to have more. He might be able to have, to have steak and dessert, but Chris might be limited still to just this part, which is only he can have salad and obviously pasta. And that concept of saying that not all players are equal and not all players can handle the same constraints within a offense is an powerful part of developing an offense as well and evolving it. Because I think too often we wait for all the players to get to a certain level, especially if I'm thinking about youth level, whereas we want to maximize players and give them the most possibilities in terms of their solutions. So then from there, it obviously becomes what can I isolate in decision making? What can I isolate within these different actions? You think about Princeton, you talk, think about chin action, this back screen that leads to this flare screen type of situation. Can I isolate that? And can I develop decision-making encounters out of that? But we can't start with all that. And I'm not saying throw all that off them at once, but what we're saying is that happens within four on three, or it happens within three on three, four on four first. And then we decide, do we need to break it down and refine different actions out of that? And hopefully that kind of gives a picture of kind of how we would approach it. Absolutely. The, the sort of five on O concept, the on-air training is the, is the terminology that you often use. Yeah. Um, I was confused about thinking it was a radio broadcast at one point, but um, the, but think about on-air don't most teams start by teaching it on-air. Yeah, I think that's true. I think that's totally fair. And many times there are um, talk about from an integrated approach, there are very valid reasons for uh, how much workload people can handle and trying to squeeze out some growth and some learning, maybe in a shoot around or, you know, nighttime in a ballroom at an AAU tournament or, you know, ways to try to get some learning to happen in a very low energy type way. Well, let's uh, talk about that. If we could, let's talk about that. Yeah. Because right visual occlusion, we'll come back to that and we'll talk about that in terms of film and everything else. But just in terms of that piece, Shoot arounds are the greatest example in the NBA. Like I would say, by and large, what NBA coaches have mastered is the art of teaching within shoot arounds. And to me, that's a framework for practice with workload management, isn't it? That you're still doing mental reps. And I would say, I would argue this slow reps five on five are better than fast reps five on O. Oh. So in shoot arounds, that's what I've observed. It's not always five on five, but I see offense versus defense with your players on defense, not just managers and players walking through both positions. And they're basically like mental reps. Do you feel that that's enough to be able to develop offense and offensive understanding 
in this concept of slow reps when we're worried about workload? No, definitely not. There you I, go. I think, yeah, the um, the trap that I feel like many people get into is that they work from the well. This is what is typical, whether it be shoot arounds themselves or the sort of rhythm of an NBA schedule or a collegiate, you know, study hall. Uh, practice right afterwards, training table right after that, um, instead of doing something you suggested earlier in this conversation, which is working with an end in mind and looking at here are the blocks of time in our lives and how, what are our opportunities to um, cultivate and augment and uh, better the ones that we, that might be typical and then what are the things that we have to like really try to mitigate in terms of the challenges? What are the things that, all right, no NBA player is going to feel comfortable playing in an NBA game without 10 minutes of shooting at the very least on the court, an hour and a half to 20 minutes beforehand. Um, many of them would feel very uncomfortable if you took layup lines out of their schedule because they might've been doing it for eight, nine, 10 years of their career. Working backwards from that, I think there's real power in trying to identify learning opportunities and rethinking the ways that within those constraints, you can find um, actual growth. How can you insert desirable difficulties into what you're doing in those kinds of on-air moments? Can you interleave information? Can you space the work that you're doing? Um, can you create opportunities to recall practice within that? And the five on O piece, I think is so interesting because it it highlights, I think, you know, even the way you initially brought it up, um, had a, I think, appropriately defensive spirit to it. Coaches, it's okay to do five on O. I think many people perceive uh, teaching in a modern way to mean eliminating anything that's on air, eliminate anything. So I love that you mentioned that there is value there. What what is the ways to squeeze the most value out of it? What is the when you do on air work? What can you do to make it great and pertinent? Well, let's think about it this way, like on-air drills or drills in general are reconnections. I think we think of them as starting points or the beginning of teaching or the first progression. Whereas I would want to think of them more as the things that reconnect players to the game situation or the game application of it. So think about it. If we taught some, we taught a new play five on five, we walk through it five on five, and then we go live five on five for a little bit and it looks ugly. It looks messy. And then we go to the five on O they get the structure of it down and then we go back to the five on five, then they feel more competent and more comfortable. And you mentioned this concept of pregame warmup. And that, that's something that we kind of briefly touched on privately, but it's like people perceive seeing Steph Curry do two ball dribbling as that's his development, that he did two ball dribbling to develop, right? And that's no, he's doing two ball dribbling prior to the game because it's comfort and confidence. That helps him get comfortable. Just like you said, players shooting before the game, comfortable and confidence, right? The problem is where I would challenge generally coaches that do a lot of this and players that do a lot of this, and really it's the players that I think drive this at the NBA level, is them getting 100 reps up on air after practice, right after practice. It's like at the end of the day, how can we show them and explain to them that shooting 50 shots with a decision preceding the shot is more valuable than to them shooting 100 shots from set spots with nobody? And I've seen it and I've seen it well. And I think coaches are arguing, well, now we add a coach there to challenge the shot. Well, okay. Yeah, that adds 
some some visual you know stimuli or some some distracting information to the shot so it's better than nothing but at the end of the day what it still doesn't have included is a decision prior to the shot and nobody has ever shot a shot in an nba game without a decision prior to catching the ball and that's where i think we don't connect as much what we call on air to the game and that's this concept of we do bdt basketball decision training shooting and all we add is visual cues to it and again there's another part to it you understand it we understand it basketball is more of a visual cue game than a verbal cue game i think too often we think verbal cues are the man even on defense like i i get it call it the screen you know what that player better have perceived it happening before the call because by the time the player calls it isn't it too late and that comes back to speaking about decision making and perception before decision on offense and defense. And I know we went a lot of places there, but hopefully that all connects. <laughs> I love that. And I think the the question that um, I'm very interested in, and maybe others are too, listening to you um, speak about all these varied principles is what what have you learned about structuring your own learning? And what sorts of advice do you have for us and maybe for yourself, depending on where you're at in your own journey about how to take these principles, apply it in your own work and life, and what can be gained learning and struggling through um, creating desirable difficulties for yourself? And are there any sort of concrete ideas you have about ways that you think um, coaches, depending on the, the level, um, the age of the players they're working with, can create reinforcing systems to support their own learning? Wow. Yes. What a great question. I mean, again, we think about it in terms of, you know, the best player development is coach development. And, and that's the thing. It's right. And, and really thinking about it. I mean, the number one thing is obviously to reverse engineer your season or your successes or your needs improvements and to be able to go and say, okay, what, what can we do better? And then what can I do better to be able to help support that and shape that? And that would be a big point. It's like, okay, say you drop coverage, you know, we this we were just awful and drop coverage. And it's like, well, then obviously reverse engineer that and say, was it the drop coverage or, you know, was it the players in the drop coverage? Was it my teaching of the drop coverage and all those things that go with it? And the only way to do that is obviously to be able to reach out to people and stimulate yourself either through online learning, through in, you know, visits or through com communication and conversation to be able to find out what other people are doing. And I think that's been a big, big part of the pandemic for everyone is that the pandemic has really inspired more people to share the game authentically and genuinely because those Zooms, I mean, I'm telling you, people did some real high level stuff. And a lot of them, as you know, were behind the scenes, private, you had your little, little private groups and stuff like that, but those type of things. So I would definitely organize that part of it. We always talked about, um, we always already talked about obviously recording yourself and watching yourself. I mean, just what you're saying. Like even people that do the podcast, sometimes I send it back to them and I say, are you aware how many times you say, um, before you speak? Or uh, one coach said, yes, no, almost before every answer. Yes, no, before every answer. And they weren't aware of it. And I sent it back to them and they're very appreciative of that. And we actually edited it out, but it helped them. Cause again, at some point, Will's going to be interviewing again for a head coaching job. It's like, if every time he's saying yes, no, prior to an answer, I, you know, the people that you're trying to sell yourself to are probably going, well, wait a minute. There's something wrong there. So like listening to yourself, recording yourself, and then watching a practice or watching something with a peer that will challenge you. 
you know, why would I love talking to you, Will? Because you'll call me out on something and say, no, that doesn't work. Here's why, in my opinion. And it's like those conversations there, you have people that will actually do that are so important. Um, one last, I well, not uh, not Ryan Richmond, assistant for the Washington Wizards. He had this great point that we had this whole conversation about having your whiteboard and being able to stop games and be able to, when there's a timeout or different situations, you know, okay, say it's live play and I can pause it. And now I'm going to diagram a play that I think would work in this situation with the personnel on the floor. So putting yourself in that situation to get game reps, well, taking a step further, a, a, a GA who's moving up to an assistant, he was asking me about what he should do this year. And I said, coach the team, coach the team. So every decision, every situation, have a notebook or however you're going to do it, Google Drive. Uh, and just what would you do? What from the beginning before you even start, plan the season with the personnel you have and do it. And that's not to usurp the coaches, you know, the way the coach is doing it. That's to say, okay, support your own learning by what would you do in these situations? And you don't even have to necessarily bring it up to the head coach, but it's going to stimulate your thinking about what it would, what it would do and what it wouldn't do. Whole bunch of ideas. I know. Yeah. I love that. I mean, the, the where I am particularly energized by that is that you are stealing some concepts from um, other fields, other sports, you know, the decision journal of Ray Dalio, the um, opportunities to look at what other sports or industries are doing and um, connecting that to your approach. Um, the sort of decision simulator, the um, one of my favorite books is the checklist manifesto and the ways that pilots are uh, trained in simulators and the opportunity to look for simulations in our own life and feeling the power of that can't help but influence your coaching and come back to, well, geez, if the best, most highest stakes sorts of professionals are being trained in this manner, what can we do to copy some of that and leverage some of that power for our athletes and for ourselves? Because I think all of us as a profession, the thing that I think gives our path um, the most heart is the degree of care and the degree of interest. And even folks that are willing to spend 45 minutes, listen to, you know, us jokers talk about this kind of stuff. There's so many people who are really care deeply about this. Um, and many of us, all of us at different times will be caught in these webs of this is what I'm used to. And I haven't questioned it. And even now, the things that we think are, we have high levels of confidence about will certainly change over the course of our lives. Um, but if you don't create opportunities, peers to sit next to, to watch practices for that thinking to change, um, what, what a missed opportunity. Are there specific areas of um, interest or innovation that you think basketball coaches can be looking at that many aren't? Are, are there ways that you think um, we have things to learn and that there are there opportunities that you think all of us could be adding into our own professional growth? Well, I think a big piece of the professional growth, growth, growth for people is obviously it's going to be leveraging technology, you know, and, and finding out ways. I mean, I, I can't imagine being on an NBA staff now how you'd have to keep up to date on all the new analytics and all the different things that come your way in a sense. And it's like valuing what ones actually help and what ones can go from there. And this example that Leonard Ziakowski, Playmaker's Advantage, he talked about it on the podcast he did with me, but his book as well, is this concept of visual occlusion. 
which I think is, again, a next level development thing for players and for coaches is this concept of, okay, you, you see a clip or you watch a clip and you, you and I, you can reflect back on these chunking studies that Chase and Simon did with chess. And it's like, basically you show a master a chess board and remove something. So occlude something and they would still be able to identify what was supposed to happen next with like incredible accuracy. So I think this concept of occluding something rather than showing players the full picture, same for coaches, is like somehow we find video technology that can remove parts of the play and say, okay, what do we see? What do we see as possible now that we see that? And that obviously develops your ability to be able to see beyond the play and see what's also possible. So there's different things like that. And then um, for for me, again, uh, I mean, there's so many areas that I see as kind of like these next level development areas and something that's existed far beyond my time on this planet is this concept of time on task and active learning time. And I would say that this is still one of those areas. If I go watch high level practices or I watch youth level practice, I just see so much fluff and so much management time and so much wasted time. And we talk about workload and managing workload of players and valuing their physical toll. And I think that's really important. But often we waste so much of their time with useless stuff that doesn't actually help them in a game. And that would be the part that kind of connects back to me is like, obviously, we can think about it as a coach talks too much, or we can talk about saying the 10 minutes we spent on this on-air drill took, a, took physical toll on this player that now removes them from stuff that actually helps them in a game. So instead of practicing for an hour and a half, we could practice for 45 minutes and have more benefit for the player. And that would be the true mastery, I think, of coaches is learning how to get to the point of just what actually helps a player improve and what actually helps our team win and be very obsessed with that in terms of managing our practice and the different things that go with that. All right. So I want to take sort of a a conceptual look at your perspective on um, offense and defense. And I'm interested to know as you speak to and watch and think critically about a bunch of different teams at a bunch of different levels in the game of sort of cops and robbers, what are some things that you feel like offenses are just much further ahead on than defenses and inverted? Where, where do you see moments, uh, concepts, patterns that make you think uh, defenses are really doing something that is flummoxing offensive coaching and decision-making. And then what, what do you think the contributing factors are to those? Hey coach, brief interruption from the podcast. Have you heard of Spotify green room? Spotify green room is a free audio only social media platform for sports fans. Start enjoying ongoing conversations, watch games together, react to the biggest news, rumors, and games. Talk with other sports fans, insiders, athletes, and executives in real time. I host a room every Tuesday at 9 p.m. Come through and talk with me live. All you need to do is download the Spotify Green Room app free in the iOS or Android app store. Create a profile, link your Twitter, and join the conversation. Follow me at B-Ball Immersion on Twitter to be notified when my room goes live. Coach, we appreciate your support of our sponsors that help make the basketball podcast available to you. Kansas City Steak Company wants to make this your best grilling season ever. Visit KansasCitySteaks.com and get 15% off your order and free shipping with code SD. Kansas City Steaks has everything you need to fire up the grill. Enjoy their butter tender filet mignon, hearty Kansas City strip steaks, and savory ribeyes. It's been a hard year, so enjoy being together again by bringing the steakhouse to your house with Kansas City Steaks. 
Go to KansasCitySteaks.com and get 15% off your order and free shipping with code SD at checkout. That's KansasCitySteaks.com, code SD. Well, I think so much of the contributing factors are obviously the rules, right? And you, and you know that from having coached head coach of Sydney Kings last year in Australia and being with their national program and everything like that. Just the rules are different, right? And, and again, it's like really hard sometimes for I know a high school coach to watch the NBA and go, oh my God, they just gave up a layup with no rotation, right? And it's and it's what some people don't understand in watching the NBA is like, that's kind of by design sometimes, right? It's like, we are not helping off this player <laughs> no matter what. So it comes back to this, where is the offense ahead? Well, the offense is ahead in terms of spacing. It's all about the spacing game, right? At the best levels, the best teams, you can talk about Alabama, Nate Oates at the college level, and you think about what do they do amazingly this year that helped them they just space they just know how to space and then where the defense is behind is the defense is all about taking away space and the defense you know i i think really again to complement defense defense has caused all of this development right like the defense like whether you go back to you know 10 years ago in the nba and you think about how the game was played obviously the rules big change but also the way defense played you know a lot of ice and different types of coverages like that and then the offense adjusts and the offense figures it out. And uh, I may be wrong, but I think the offense should always be ahead of the defense because the offense always has the counter to the counter, right? And that's what good offense always does is puts you in those situations to be able to do that. And uh, the spacing concept is so key. And uh, I just, I, I think about the college level, you think about pack line and how powerful pack line was. But now the teams like the Alabamas and stuff like that are putting so much pressure, so much, if you used your term gravity, you know, so much gravity on the floor that now all of a sudden the pack line becomes less effective because we're finding ways to be able to attack with gaps and stuff. Um, I would say, and maybe I'm wrong here, but I would say one of the other challenges is that now offense is almost too obsessed with creating too much space. <laughs> and it's like, how much space does one of your players really need? They, do they need a get, double gap or is a single gap good enough to be able to attack and play? So those type of things. And uh, you see that in some of these games, but uh, I'm fascinated by that space battle and then how they're going to go. And then I'm also fascinated by how teams are going to adjust closeouts. You know, and, and that's, and we've seen that. Haven't we seen that through the playoffs? Like how many times we go, don't foul a shooter. And shooters are getting fouled everywhere. And some of that is the offense just learning how to cheat. In, in in ways within the rules, right? They're cheating, but they're yeah. taking advantage of the rule. And it's like, how is the defense going to adjust to that? Well, we know the rule might adjust to that, but then how can the defender adjust to that? And then uh, what you're willing to give up in terms of that? I know I'm curious. I'm so curious on the defensive side too. What team is going to finally go to some more aggressive coverages and mix in more aggressive coverages? Yeah. Right. And uh, I think we even saw that in the NCAA championship game, just as like, Man, like Gonzaga did their best. Baylor had a solution to everything they did. But then at some point, you have to mix it up with some type of really aggressive coverage to just change it. And we know that from, say, thinking which NBA teams using the next ball screen defensive coverage at times. Can't use it all the time, but can you mix it in to be able to throw off a team? Different things like that. Yeah, it's the ways that those sort of one game situations or you know, just a couple of small you know, series, maybe that you, the, it's going to swing on the basis of maybe three games right at the start as to whether it's, you're going to be successful or not. Just how, how anti-fragile can you help your team become? And I think a lot of that, you know, you, you see what you believe, but I'm, I'm highly uh, convinced that 
some of the anti-fragility that you can build into a team, some of the robustness that you can contribute to the team comes from the conceptual approach. And um, if you thought of you know, offense as getting an advantage through some sort of structured format, call it a play, uh, getting an advantage through an unstructured format, you know, call it transition or some sort of just conceptual approach of back cutting and denial or something like that. And then keeping that advantage, you know, how, how can you create the um, driving kick, the dominoes, the ways to get the ball to the player who's eventually going to be able to finish the possession. Um, I surely think you've seen a shift in how much time is spent on that organized, get the advantage through a play idea because so many of these championship level games come down to um, less structured moments and being able to thrive in those moments. That makes me think about the connection between just the uniformity of how people play and the sort of trickle down effect of an effective scheme, be it dribble drive. You know, you talked about the idea of Vance Wahlberg, single gaps, double gaps, or pack line, obviously coach Bennett and the way that he's proliferated that throughout Mike D'Antoni obviously has had a huge impact on the way, particularly NBA offenses are run. Um, but I, from where you sit, I'd be curious to hear your perspective on um, what can be learned from the diversity of approaches that exist internationally, small, small college, high school. Um, and what do you think a coach that wants to inject some creativity into their team and maybe a contrarian approach where, where are the places that you'd go look and feel free to plug previous <laughs> podcast episodes or um, yeah. guests, you know, people that you've seen practice, um, send us a couple of places. So, I mean, let's far, start with the theory first, which is it, people, uh, maybe this is a rant on the media a little bit, but like how many times during these playoffs, have you listened to media after the fact, Oh, they didn't make any adjustments, you know, and that's, that's a pet peeve of mine. And that's a defensive coaches. It's like, like everyone thinks you got to have these, all these adjustments. And I love the word anti-fragility because that's exactly it. Right. If you're going to will as a coach, make an adjustment, then to a certain extent, you might be shattering your player's belief in what you've taught all year. And it's like, you can't just go do that all the time, right? You can make subtleties within what you do, but to be able to kind of keep your team robust and believing in self-efficacy in the coach and everything you're doing in terms of your system, you can't just go change everything all of a sudden. And uh, I think that's one of those overrated concepts. And sometimes, as many of coaches have been on the podcast have said, the number one adjustment is let's do it better. Right. Let's do what we do better. And sometimes that involves subbing and getting a different player on the floor or changing matchups or doing different things. But by and large, it's just do it better because we've done this all year. So that's such an, a, a curious part of kind of this anti-fragility. So I'm just glad you brought that up because I think that rant kind of I get frustrated kind of listening to people question coaches in that way. Is that, is that fair in terms of kind of you hear that, too? Do you get a little frustrated? Certainly. And I think we've all been on. Um, the sides of teams that have tried something new and had it be successful and looking back with, you know, immense um, gratitude mostly and a small amount of pride. And we probably have many more examples of trying something that failed miserably because we didn't practice it and we didn't have any confidence in its ability to tilt the matchup that we had um, for, because there were just, more important constraints. There were, there were, our hands were tied in other ways, um, sometimes by ourselves, but many times by 
the strengths and weaknesses of our roster and the health and availability of players and the confidence and the form that our players are in at that time. Um, but the ways that you can cultivate more options for yourself and more things that um, if you want to call them adjustments, go for it, but that there's a you broaden your own sphere of understanding as a total team. Um, the more diversity you have in the types of teams you play against um, and the longer you have with each other, the more opportunity there is to develop a common language. I mean, all those things, I think, put more tools in your toolbox. You mentioned you know, specific in terms of like nexting pick and roll and being more willing to go to blitzing, trapping, more aggressive coverages. Are there anything on the offensive side of the ball that you think has particularly intrigued you recently that you maybe only see in its budding phase and proliferation now, but that you expect to grow in the coming years? Yeah. You know, I've been fascinated and I don't know what you guys call it. So maybe you can put a term with it, but these hook back screens where somebody who's going to screen runs beyond the kind of the typical place where you would set it. And then they hook back to set a screen. So it, sometimes it results in stagger, stagger handoff. Sometimes it's just in a handoff where you see that you can picture Utah doing this. Certainly this is a Dan Antonio concept from what I understand, because, you know, the sideline inbound plays they used to always run where they would hook back to get the stagger screen for hard and out of bounds. But uh, you can picture Utah, somebody even running a dribble handoff under the player and then intentionally hooking back for that player to come yeah. back. So you see some of these things that I don't get, again, if you have a name for all those concepts, but seeing those and the heat use them a lot and different teams like that, that you can look at. and. Uh, I'm fascinated by that because to me, that's like such a great, simple misdirection without running all this buildup. And I think that's what the NBA, like we wonder why the NBA doesn't look like Europe because Dan Antonio and these other coaches have done such a brilliant job of saying, well, because we have the most skilled player in the world. Sometimes we should just get right to the point. Yeah. You know, and that's frustrating. I think for coaches sometimes where they think, well, why aren't you? He can just beat his guy and create advantage right away then you're immediately into the play after the play and the decision-making, it kind of simplifies it, doesn't it? Yeah, and the rules, as you pointed out astutely earlier, are so different, right? The, the way that carries are adjudicated or not adjudicated in different leagues, um, the physicality that's allowed from your screeners. You know, There's many more aggressive coverages in China because um, you can absolutely tee off on the player that's guarding the ball. And if you don't come help on that and aren't aggressive on the ball, Jimmer Fredette is going to give you 75 points. Um, and so I think the innovation oftentimes comes from deeply understanding and questioning the rules and working backwards. I mean, obviously you're seeing the NBA now assess that approach um, the way that uh, fouls are being drawn by shooters with unnatural movements preceding them. And um, that cops and robbers game, I think, is is fascinating. And I would love to I think it, it'd be an amazing clinic for someone to host about the ways that, that um, you know, Derek Fisher deserves credit for all the brilliant little ways he found in his career to affect winning um, by understanding the rules and understanding his strengths and weaknesses and um, teaching that to a group, if he's ever willing to do a clinic, I would, I would be first in line to come watch because that to me has so much power in any level of basketball. Well, and this is such a great point that you bring up too about the importance of studying players. 
because often players are the innovators and we credit the coach with the innovation, right? Cause the coaches like names it or puts it into context for people, but players play the game. They see things. And I think so many things, like I call it the stab dribble. I know in Australia, they call it the throwdown dribble, but now you see that everywhere in the NBA. And it's like, some people still question me on that. And I'm like, they just get the ball down. They get the ball down because it gets immediately into the decision, right? And it's this concept of this long first step that used to exist. We can get into biomechanics and all that. But really, by and large, what the whole point is, players didn't actually do what we thought we taught them, right? They didn't actually do it. And that's that driving. So that Derek Fisher's example is so good. Uh, the other piece I, I do want to circle back to, because I love the phrasing too, this diversity. And I probably didn't answer that part of it. But to watch innovation, don't watch the NBA. And that's not a knock on the NBA. Like people look at it, but the NBA is like, you got, first of all, you got world-class players at every position. So simple is better, but also it's by and large, you're dealing with such, like, it's really hard for a coach with that much money on the line to say, I'm going to go just go do something completely radically different, isn't it? So me, it's like, look at these teams, like where does nexting come from? It comes from say Mancho Fernandez in the ACB league in Spain. And he's going I have no budget and I'm trying to compete against Barcelona and Real Madrid. So I got to try something because I'm getting fired anyways. Right. <laughs> and isn't that the case in Europe? Like coaches recycle around so much. And to a certain extent, Australia, the NBL, the coaches recycle that you get that one year. You're more likely to try stuff because, you know, if I don't do something, we ain't winning anyways. Whereas in the NBA, the equality of talent across the board, and I would say the equality of resources makes it less likely to want to completely innovate something. So college, you see that with small college. You mentioned, obviously, um, uh, Rob Scalicola. I think it's how you say it. At same, like You see different things like that where you go, man, you're doing something different because he has to. <laughs> and that's, that's where he's the mother of invention. Yeah, he has to. And you said China. It's like, well, because they have, as you know, a lot of those leagues, it's, it's three players that can play. And the rest of them are essentially role players. So you can find different ways to scheme off of that. Whereas the NBA, you can't scheme off a certain, well, you basically can't scheme off of anyone, can you? <laughs> it's hard. It's hard. I, I want to give you the chance to lift the curtain a little bit. You are producing an outrageous amount of content. Your website is chock full of amazing clinics and practices and film sessions. Um, you're interviewing interesting people from across the world. Um, men's and women's hoops. Uh, what what are the things that you learn doing that? And whether it be technical, um, relationship based, um, just sort of look, give us a sense of what it's like to do your job, and maybe give us an insight into things we don't know about um, the initiatives and the sort of way the ways that basketball immersion is changing and growing. Well, thank you. First of all, I mean, for example, content wise, people like you that are willing to do like a master class and really dive deep on a subject. Like I think about yours, obviously you did it on transition and just presented again, some of these ideas that are in your mind and share the mind of Will Weaver. And that's what I've been grateful for with the podcast, with the master classes in our community is that experts from around the world. And you talked about diversity and really that's been an intent from the beginning is to not Look, I know the, the majority of listeners are still from America. That's just the demographics, I think, of most basketball podcasts or most basketball education pieces. But to prov provide an opportunity for them to get behind the mind of an assistant coach or a head coach, wherever they are in the world, has just been remarkable to be able to do that and share that. And I will credit the coaches that come on, and it's easier now. So there's a look behind a little bit. 
easier now for me to go to somebody who hasn't heard say of me, but maybe has heard of the podcast, or at least they are one degree of separation away from say, asking you on their staff, say, have you ever heard of this podcast? And go, oh, listen, it'll be a real conversation, not a media conversation, which is really the sell for me to coaches to say, come on here. You don't have to talk about your players. I'm not going to ask you why you didn't do this in game seven. We're going to say, Hey, what, you know, let's dive deep into the real conversation. Like, like we're trying to do here with this is to be able to get in depth and find out what are you actually doing and how are you doing it? Uh, what supersedes everything is still the culture piece. I think every coach in some way still talks about culture and talks about the values and relationships. And I, I would, I would simplify that beyond culture. And I would say relationships like that's shone through in terms of that is how is a coach, how is a coach, am I creating this psychological safety for players, this psychological safety where I can create an environment for them to be willing to reach beyond their level, to learn, to struggle, and then to feel that they're better from that process. And I think, you know, you hear these references to DeAndre H and Aiton right now as we're watching it and saying, well, what, what sparked him? And I've got to think that Monty Williams and the staff and the whole environment there created a safe environment for him to struggle and learn and to be able to notice it and to be able to support it when it happens. And that's ultimately what this learning culture is. This learning practice is that we have to notice it and we have to, yes, sir, we go through this process of shaping it, but we also want to notice it and support it when it happens. And I would have a, this is another thing I would have a coach, by the way, this is maybe an aside is the best value of my assistant coaches pro producing scouting reports at this point. Like, I think not like, I think honestly, the intelligence of so many young video guys nowadays is like, I would spend more time outsourcing that stuff and obviously have checks and balances, but to have Will Weaver spend more time on the relationship piece and the player development piece than I would on that. And part of that would be having someone, a quality control coach, be able to obviously just focus on our team and every day focusing on scattering reports of our team and our individual players and making them aware of something. Hey, listen, a month ago in the scout, I would have said this. Now I can't say that anymore. Right. That type of connection to being able to connect player development to their improvement. And uh, certainly when we're talking about a lot of levels, their retention in the sport or their retention on our team, which is also a big piece in a lot of levels of, of that. Um, behind the scenes wise, here's a little thing too, Will, which I don't get pitched very often in terms of people getting on the podcast and wanting to get on the podcast. And that surprises people when I tell them. It's like, and, the, and there's some very good coaches that have been on it that will use it as part of their basketball resume, right? To get a job. And I know certain people, uh, TJ Saint would be a great example. He's now with uh, Ryan Pannone with the, he's with the Erie, Erie uh, G League team. But, you know, Ryan listened to TJ on the podcast and said, this is a guy that'd be interesting. And then they developed a relationship from that. And now TJ became an assistant on his team. So it's like these different things that come with it is like, I'm grateful for that, but I'm also surprised sometimes that more people don't pitch themselves to be on because it's still somewhat hard to get guests. Is that, is that surprising? Yes, certainly. Um, particularly when you have the role reversed like I do now and you get to appreciate how good you are at asking um, thoughtful questions and how little planning goes into um, these conversations. It's not as if you get questions ahead of time and you script it out. Like there's, it really is just have a flow to it. That's very difficult to copy as 
probably folks will realize listening to me stumble through this today. But, uh, My role model is Howard Stern, by the way. Yeah, right. I could see that. I, I would have guessed Terry Gross, but okay. Not, not but, know, I was kind of more aligned with kind of like, uh, and you think about Howard Stern, think about him now more interviewing a celebrity or a singer or something like that. And just the depth that he's able to get to with someone and get them beyond. And there's always that initial part. It's just like building any relationship. You and I at the beginning will have this kind of really simple, basic back and forth. You'll give me this, the really kind of like cliche or contrived answers. And then eventually you'll relax and start giving me more. And I think about a guy like John Patrick, who was on the podcast and a great coach in Europe, one of the few coaches that presses and has done great success. And I know initially he was reluctant and he didn't really want to share a lot. And, and I, I don't think he would mind me saying that, but at some point he realized he's talking to a coach and that's a different conversation, isn't it? For all of us to have a conversation with a coach versus a conversation with someone in the media. And that's what's been something that we've tried to portray for people to make you feel comfortable to do it. I'll throw one more and you can decide whether to keep it or not, depending on if you've got a great answer or you want to approach it with. <laughs> what's the one question I haven't asked you that I should? What's, what's an area of interest or uh, what's reflected in the amount of time you spend thinking about something that we haven't discussed? and? Maybe you haven't discussed with many others, but that you think should be a part of the conversation. So, it's, wow. What a, so to me, what, what is basically you're saying, what is somebody not? What, yeah, what did what you not ask me? You go to a clinic, you're liable to hear about next. You, yeah. um, you listen to a coach talk, you're liable to hear about connecting to players and building team culture. Um, what, what's the thing that you think is missing from either this conversation today or um, broadly missing from the conversations you have with other coaches? How I teach. Like how I teach is still, so I would say 90% of what Alex Sarama and I share with basketball immersion and certainly in the membership community, you can get what, you see what we teach because obviously we're teaching something. So you see what we teach. But at the end of the day, I think what people don't ask enough and get enough out of me is about how and how. And again, I think we're all like, I don't want to, nobody's ever wrong. That's the thing as well. Like you and I know that nobody's wrong. Like you could teach it completely differently than how we teach it. But the question I comes back to how I teach, because why is it important? Because it connects with the players, because the players enjoy being taught this way. That's what I can't, I don't see coaches connecting enough with our methodologies it's really, again, it's not us saying our way's better. You know, I don't want you to be a disciple. And you wouldn't be. That's the thing. If you critically look at what we do, you can always find things that you say, mm, that doesn't align, or I don't agree with that, or I wouldn't do it that way. I wouldn't just throw them in the deep end. Well, that's fine. But why do we teach the way we teach is so that players enjoy and get more satisfaction out of playing basketball. And I think that's got to be constantly on our mind nowadays. Because if I think about what comes back to that conversation about fun, if a player enjoys working with me, we're going to have a much better experience. And ultimately, again, you're going to get much better feedback from you as a coach. And uh, that's a part of it that I just don't think people dive enough into with me. But I do get people asking me, hey, you know, what was your favorite podcast? What was your, you know, what's the best play you've seen this year? Man, it's still, I get it. If I share a video of me teaching 
on Twitter versus I share a play, the play gets so many more views and so many more likes and so many more retweets than me sharing how I actually teach something or how Alex teaches it, you know, different things like that. And that kind of at the same time, it's like, I get it. We all like plays, but to me, people still are missing the point of what we're trying to share. And that's probably why we don't share enough publicly as much of how we teach, because we know it doesn't drive the metrics. It doesn't drive the business back to what we want, which is to get a membership to basketball immersion. And sometimes that's hard. And I think we're beyond that point. Like the podcast is beyond the point where I have to have just celebrities, which is the best thing ever, right? I don't have to have just celebrities. Even if you have a, like Ronald Nord stays a celebrity or not, or Ryan Richmond celebrity or not, people that know, know they're really good, right? But at the end of the day, People are, we're still going to get thousands of people listening to the podcast because now they trust that it's going to be someone that's going to add value. And that's really where I think, you know, there's a lot of things there, but, uh, I I love that within that you pointed us towards, um, what can be learned from players, you know, underestimating the, at your own peril, do you underestimate the amount of growth that comes the direction that doesn't get a lot of focus? in coaching clinics or um, education textbooks is what can be learned from these players that are actually playing the game. And by the way, get much broader experience of teaching points and philosophies and concepts because of the fact that they're going to move from team to team over the course of their career. And they've been around a wider range of folks than just our little insular coaching trees. Um, so I love that you, I love that you highlighted that part. And, and I love more broadly that you've created a space like this for coaches to um, talk about the ways that um, their care is manifested onto their teams and uh, the opportunity to listen to the wide range of folks that you bring on the podcast um, is a, is a real privilege. So thank you. Thank you. And like you speak to that point, it's like it's 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 a vehicle for people to share and not sell. Right. And and I think that's comfortable for coaches. The coaches like to share. But I think, again, like whether it's paranoia or just the fact that they feel this pressure to constantly sell, because, again, I'm trying to sell myself. I'm trying to sell for my future. I'm trying to sell for recruits and all that stuff. And it's like just a safe space to be able to do that. So I'm glad that connects, you know, with so many coaches and. Basically, I'm, I was the avatar. Like I created all this for myself in a sense. Like what would I have liked? What do I want? And what would I find value from? And I think that's the thing is there's people like you and me that like really want to geek out on some of this stuff and, and get this information and find out, wow, okay, that's what they're saying or that's what they're doing or that's how they're doing it. And I hope coaches keep buying into that and keep doing that. And, uh, you know, and that's the diversity piece that we've seen from the podcast is all different levels of coaches have such incredible things. And you can think about like Doug Novak, someone like that and go like more people should know about this guy. Why is he not on an NBA staff, right? Like he's one of the best teachers I've ever been around. And, you know, Dave Smart, why is Dave Smart not on an NBA staff, for example? Like if you're really talking about the greatest minds in basketball, like a lot of them aren't, you know, where we would think they would be to a certain extent. And uh, that's such a curiosity as well. Um, this, this helps shape it for people. I've never been offered a job and, and I like, people are always like, oh, you must be getting offers all the time. And I'm like, well, first of all, I don't put that out in the universe. That's not a goal of mine. So maybe that's why. But the other part is, I think, again, like some people perceive the way people do things as maybe not as productive for their program and for their things. 
So to hire a Doug Novak might be threatening, right? Yeah, and, and we discussed this in our conversation that we had on your podcast, I think a couple of years ago, which is that the the idea of what a coach is, um, uh-huh. there are many powerful incentives to act like a coach. <laughs> and there are far less obvious incentives to actually fulfill this incredible obligation that we have. And um, careers are, are built and destroyed on ATO draw-ups. Surely we don't think the ability to, you know, spend 25 seconds, um, you know, drawing something in the dirt and that that should determine the rise and fall of, of dynasties and, and um, NBA coaching careers at the highest level to the same extent that encouraging players to find their own joy and mastery of these skills do and disconnecting from the results of a shot going in or a foul being called or any of those sorts of vagaries. Um, so all of that is just makes me appreciate the, the quality and depth and the nuance that exists inside of the conversations that you host um, for people. And now I can appreciate even more so the skill that you bring uh, to the interviewing process. So well, thank asking, you for the podcast. Asking questions, for hard, it? asking questions is hard for a lot of people. And I would say that's the biggest thing. If you're a young person, work on asking questions. You know? And I think we talked about that too. Uh, the, the, just this, this, I guess this concept of, of, of fighting media perceptions and administrative perceptions about what coaching actually looks like. And we have to do that. If, if we want the narrative to change about how we should evaluate a coach or different things like that, then us as coaches have to quit buying into the stereotypes and more shaping it for us. And hopefully that's come from the pandemic a little bit too, is this kind of relaxation on what actually coaching is. Coaching is not being in the office from five to 10 o'clock at night, 5 a.m. to 10 o'clock at night, is it? Because by and large, if I know if when I was in the office from 5 a.m. to 10 o'clock at night, I wasn't productive that whole time because there's no humanly possible way to do that. So what does actually coaching look like? Is coaching ranting and raving on the sidelines or is it sitting there and pontificating what should be coming next, what you should be doing next and analyzing it? And those type of things. And I'm guessing maybe, you know, the NBA level, it seems like that's changing the perception a little bit of what a coach is. It seems like it hasn't filtered down to college as much and youth level as much in terms of that. This the stoism, if you want to say about how a coach actually should probably analyze and be. We'll solve that next time. Next time on the podcast, we will talk Thanks again, Chris. This hey. is great. All right. Thank you, Will. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and to give the Basketball Podcast and this week's guest a shout out on social media to show your support for us sharing the game. And to stay up to date on all things Basketball Immersion, subscribe to our newsletter at basketballimmersion.com newsletter.